Hello and welcome to the RISE podcast. I'm Joe Bullo, Partnerships Manager at RISE and a co-producer of the RISE podcast. And today I'm speaking to Armando Ali. Armando is CEO of the PAL Network, a South-South partnership of organizations working across three continents to collect data on learning with the goal of spurring citizen and political action. PAL Network is also an active member of the RISE Community of Practice, a group of implementers looking to share lessons and experiences about how to address the learning crisis. We talk about a whole lot in this episode, from Armando's memories as a child in Nampula, Mozambique, to a generation later, what he learned from piloting Mozambique's first citizen-led assessment of learning in the same location. Reflecting on this, he talks about why success in literacy and numeracy are important indicators of whether education systems are working to give children value in their education, and the potential of community action to drive learning outcomes worldwide from village to village. Welcome, Armando. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much, Joy, for inviting me. It's such a pleasure to be part of this conversation. I have to say, I've been really looking forward to this. Perhaps we can kick off by you telling us a little about the story of your journey to focus on education and improving education systems. What drove this initial passion? Well, I I think um, my joy to education uh, uh, is founded also from my own educational story. I was born in a very small town, a fishing town in Angosh in the southeast part of Nampula province in Mozambique. I remember my first school where I joined for grade one in Murupula district, Nampula province. Uh, The school was very poor. It was very old, uh, uh, local made infrastructure built from uh, mud uh, bricks and covered by grass. Uh, we used to sit in the, on the floor, and sometimes when we were lucky, we could get some trunks of trees uh, to sit on as benches. So until 1986, I would say the general situation of rural schools in Mozambique was more or less similar. Many children were studying like me. Uh, and we felt that we were all equal, despite the problems, and we had equal chances to learn to read, to do basic maths, and to have joy in the middle of all difficulties that we faced. Uh, I learned to read when I was grade two. I could read uh, fluently, and I could do basic maths at grade three. I remember uh, uh, a few months ago, my father uh, shared with me a a letter I wrote when I was at grade four. And of course it had some errors here and there, but I could communicate the basics that I wanted to communicate to my father. Uh, Then uh, you might remember that Mozambique have a very long civil war. And I started my primary school during that era. Um, And in the late 80s, from uh, 1987 to 1994, uh, we lived what I would call a transition era to the market economy. 
and many social disruptions. Uh, we started seeing teachers on strike. We started experiencing a lack of school material. And we started also uh, seeing the first signs of corruption in the school system. I remember that when I was in grade seven, uh, we were all shocked because uh, one student coming from the town, from Nampula, to our school, he was performing very poorly. But at the end of the year, he was exempted from doing exams. So he passed. And for us, it was a shock because we couldn't believe that that was happening uh, in front of all of us and we couldn't do anything. That transition era was, uh, I think was followed by many other social inequalities in the society. So I concluded my schooling, my university schools in 96. And I decided to go back to Nampula, uh, my province, because I thought there were where I could contribute the most to the society than staying in Maputo, in the capital city of Mozambique. My first job was at Catholic University Mozambique as a lecturer of political sciences. And I think that's, there is where I started realizing that something was wrong with the following generation, uh, uh, the generation that followed me. Uh, because for the first time, I started having uh, students who had difficulties in explaining a concept, who had difficulties in uh, doing an essay. Uh, and you, you, you just, uh, I remember asking just a small, small and basic question, how can you describe your day today? Please write in a paper, how do you describe your day? And students were writing uh, poorly, uh, sentences with uh, very bad uh, structure, and uh, lots of errors, and not to mention the difficulties in resonating with logic and presenting a position with logic. So I, I was really shocked because as I said, Despite growing in the middle of all those difficulties, at grade two or grade three, we could write with sense. And now I was living in a society where people had much more resources, much more possibilities, and they couldn't read and they couldn't explain uh, their thoughts correctly. They couldn't, they couldn't articulate their thoughts and present a convincing position uh, about a, a simple topic. So then that I would say here or there was where I started worrying about what kind of uh, generation we are living to uh, 
uh, our society. So my trajectory uh, from university lecturer to working with the basics of reading, the basics of numeracies uh, started there. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing on that uh, amazing journey and, and story. Theoretically, you would assume that education will improve through time. Um, so that's a very poignant sort of juxtaposition that you realize that children were, were, were struggling more so than perhaps you observed children were and, and you were through, through schooling um, many years in the past. Um, so this is actually a, a really nice segue to to my next question as well, which is um, that you, you previously worked as the coordinator of Mozambique's first citizen-led assessment and um, an approach uh, which was inspired by Pratham's teaching at the right level. Um, can you tell us the story of what drove that endeavor? When I started uh, realizing that there was a problem with uh, education, uh, I joined a, a small program that was called Civil Society Development Facility. Uh, that program uh, was established to strengthen the participation of the society in the improvement of quality of basic services. So uh, I was really passionate about the idea of uh, getting citizens involved to improve quality of basic services. But especially on education, after three or four years, we started realizing that in general, school infrastructure were getting better. In general, more teachers were trained and allocated to schools. Uh, more children had access to school and uh, uh, for free, and they could also get access to uh, school books for free. Uh, but the main question was, is it really impacting on their ability to read and do basic maths? All those inputs that we, are, we, we can uh, see in the system, are they really contributing uh, to a better uh, quality of our education system? So we started asking ourselves that question and we, we, we didn't have answers because all reports that we were providing were, yes, we have improved the transparency of resource allocation in this school or in, in, in 56 schools where we are working. Yes, uh, teachers uh, are allocated and they are, uh, they are, they, they are engaging children in, in, in learning uh, activities, but are they gaining the results of that uh, learning? So we had that question until we met uh, uh, friends from uh, Kenya uh, who came uh, to Mozambique in, for a workshop and they were presenting how Uwezo assessment was showing if children are learning or not. So we thought immediately, this is what we need to put in place. 
So we learned from Wezo Kenya and we learned from Wezo Tanzania. And we started uh, our citizen-led assessment program in Mozambique. Uh, and we did the first assessment of uh, foundational literacy and numeracy in all 23 districts of Nampula province in 2017. And the results obviously were shocking. Only two out of 10 children could read a basic grade two story. Uh, and we are talking about Nampula province, which is uh, the second most, uh, no, is the most populous, populous province of Mozambique. Uh, and the neighboring province of Zambezia, if we put together Nampula and Zambezia province, they represent almost 50% of the uh, uh, pop student population in Mozambique. So if the problem was that big uh, in Nampula, you can imagine that uh, it's a good representation of the situation of the country. So by the time we started uh, uh, showcasing the, the issue of children going to school and not learning, uh, a new question started uh, coming up, not just in Mozambique, but in many other countries where a PAL network is working. So uh, uh, that was not our case in Mozambique, but was definitely the case of many other countries that after five years, of uh, releasing reports that show that children are going to school but they are not learning, the government's attention and discourse changed. Uh, it was not just about, or oh, maybe these data are not very fair, or maybe the sampling processes uh, were not uh, well done. So all those small, small questions were answered. So they started asking to us, yes, we know that uh, the situation is not good. So what can be done? I think uh, uh, our experience in Mozambique joined the PAL Network's movement when we have started asking what can be done. What, what else can we do to improve this situation? So that's how that after the release of our report uh, and the, after discussion with local stakeholders, the, the following program was we need to start doing something that can show that there are possibilities of reverting the situation. There are possibilities of enabling our children to learn, to learn better, to learn the foundations in order to allow them to learn other things in life. Uh, so we learned from, uh, as you said, from teaching at the right level, and we started an intervention that we call We Should Nitwelaka. This is in Makua uh, language, uh, mostly spoken basically in Nampula province, translated to uh, uh, learn by playing, you can say that. Uh, so we started with Tanitwelaka and we engaged the children in, 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 in one district 
And we engaged the schools. That was even the most remarkable, let's say, remarkable uh, strategical alliance with uh, the system. We engaged the teachers, we engaged the Minister of Education, and we said, let's do it together. Let's try this approach in some schools. And uh, after uh, 40, 50 days, we were all impressed by the results. We demonstrated that it's possible to make children to read in 40 to 50 days. It's possible to make them uh, master addition, subtraction, uh, multiplication and division in 40 to 50 days. Of course, not all children will do it uh, once, uh, at once. Uh, Maybe some other children will need more time, but if we invest in innovative ways of engaging children, if we invest in new pedagogies and approaches that will develop not only the ability to read, but also the, uh, the ability to understand how the process of learning can happen, you can make a difference. Thank you so much for sharing that, Armando. And I think it's a very sobering statistic that just two out of 10 children in Nampula could read at a basic level. And very worrying that this also could be more widely representative of the national situation in, in Mozambique too. Um, it's interesting to hear how important you found foundational literacy and numeracy was as an indicator of whether inputs were working effectively uh, in a system to produce learning and also realizing that Mozambique wasn't an isolated case and this was happening in other places as well. And I think one, one other really important takeaway from what you shared is that improvements in foundational literacy and numeracy are possible in actual fact quite quickly. Um, in 50 days, as you said, you can make progress. And I think often we hear a lot of people say that it's very difficult in education because it takes time to see the results of investments and it takes time for learning to take place and children to move through school and progress. But in actual fact, literacy is something that's very tangible um, and it's it's possible to make improvements in it quite actually quite quickly. Um, so it's very encouraging to hear about these results um, and that you found that. Um, I want to pick up on foundational literacy and numeracy a little bit more because you mentioned that, previously mentioned, that foundational literacy and numeracy in the global south is a concern and ensuring that children can read and do basic arithmetic is a critical and often missing component in enabling children to succeed. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you meant by this and perhaps the sort of change that you'd like to see? Um, and you talked a little bit about this in the approach that you employed in, in Mozambique, but it'd be great to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah, oh, Joe, if you see the recent uh, reports from uh, UNICEF, from UNESCO, uh, you will find that they all uh, agree that we have, for instance, one out of five children in Africa are out of school. And if you ask why, the reason is no more because the school is very far away. We do have more and more schools closer 
to where people are. We do have more and more teachers and the, the teacher-pupil ratio uh, has decreased, uh, let's say significantly, although the problem is still very big. But from our point of departure, we, we, we can see uh, improvements on all inputs uh, to education. But why are still children out of school? One of the reasons is because they don't see the value of spending their time going to that building every day. And when they look back and they ask themselves, what am I doing? Uh, they struggle to get responses to that. If you see a small boy in a village like where I was born, uh, at the age of uh, eight or nine, he already joins his friends to go fishing. At the age of 12, most of times, he can be responsible for bringing uh, food home. So for that child, Going to school is a waste of time because he doesn't see any added value for him and he will invest uh, his time where he feels that his contribution to the society and to his family is better. If he goes fishing, he will bring say, uh, four, seven or ten fishes that will be the meal of the family for one or two days. And he will feel much more proud because he's making a contribution to his family's uh, 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 subsistence. So if they don't understand the value of going to school, they will drop out at the age of 10, at the age of 12, or as soon as they realize that there is something else that I can do that will give me uh, more value my society than just going uh, to school and doing nothing. So it's not just uh, uh, creating the condition for children to read and do basic maths. The wonder of investing on the foundations is to give reason for children to understand why am I going to school. It's also to give to the parents reasons to understand why are they spending the, 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 the few resources they have uh, investing in the education of their children? What is the added value that will bring? If that child, a, a, a girl child or a boy child, comes back to school and reads something to the parents and the parents can hear, can follow, their attention to education changes. Their attention to education changes. If they can come with a receipt from the hospital and the child can help to read and, and explain to the parents, or they say that you need to buy paracetamol and then you need to take it uh, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Uh, oh, he can read, uh, a package of biscuits and explaining the composition of this package and how you can prepare uh, the meal using this package, the parents will understand the value of education.
But if that doesn't happen, it's a waste of time both for the parents and for the child. I think that's such an important point, Armando, and it's also a point that a recent RISE paper by one of my colleagues, Michelle Kaffenberger, and her co-authors make as part of a mixed methods study they did, which looked at the reasons for dropout among students in, in four countries, um, India, Peru, Ethiopia, and Vietnam. And their finding was that there are lots of reasons why students drop out. But one of the key reasons that is often missed is that children drop out because they're they're not progressing in their learning and education in school. They're not seeing value from their time in school. And so they're making very reasonable judgments and saying, well, if I'm not actually getting any value from my schooling experience and not progressing in my education, I'm not being able to do what I'm supposed to be able to do, then they're looking at other ways to bring value to their families and to their own lives. And so that's also a reason. So low learning is itself also a reason why children drop out. I want to now move to your more recent work at PAL Network. And now as CEO of PAL, you champion a South-South coalition of organizations collecting data on learning levels to bring about political and citizen action. What recent work by PAL Network members excite you? And, and what are some of the achievements that you've seen at country level? And I'd also really like to hear a little bit about what your aspirations are for PAL Network and what role you see it playing in the coming years. My move from uh, facility and citizen-led assessment in Mozambique to the PAL network uh, was a, a big shift at personal level, but it was also a big shift at organizational level. Uh, when I look at PAL network as a whole, and uh, you know, we started as a movement of citizens in different parts of the world, uh, in the Americas, in Africa, in Asia, uh, doing citizen-led assessment, just going household to household, asking if our children are learning and also uh, discussing the findings with their local governments. Uh, but we, we realized also that this was not an individual uh, problem. This was a global crisis. So the best way to respond was also to have a collective voice uh, on that. And all, all reports also recognize that although this is a global crisis, this affects Africa the most. This affects South Asia the most. This affects the global South the most. So if we as citizens, if we can come together and voice together, we may have a better contribution to the debate. Uh, we may have a better contribution in the process of building solutions for this problem. So PAL Network, is not just a network of solidarity in terms of we all have same problems, but it's becoming a network of engineering solutions together. So one of the things that I really like is uh, our uh, recent move uh, to develop common tools, uh, common assessment tools, uh, that can produce evidences that are comparable uh, 
uh, among different countries. And that can help us to voice better together. The idea of development of ICANN, the International Comparable Assessment on Numeracy, and now the development of ELANA, the Ill Language Literacy and Numeracy Assessment. Uh, those tools can be used in all global south and they can produce evidences that can be comparable across uh, different geographies that are mapped to global proficiency frameworks and that can be used to report against SDG 4.1.1. So the, the idea of having one common tool uh, is very, very, uh, let's say, uh, encouraging for me. And I'm, I'm very happy to uh, be now uh, leading the process of uh, running uh, next year the first, the first large-scale assessment in 15 countries uh, of the Global South using uh, common tools uh, to produce data that can be comparable and that can be used to speak at the global level about the situation in all our uh, member countries. And more so, it's not just for us. Our tools are public goods, and we will be very happy to support any other country uh, who is interested to use these tools and produce evidences. Uh, and we can map together, and we can voice it together. Uh, the second thing that really uh, uh, makes me feel happy is at some time that we have started producing evidences together, we have also started produce, producing solutions together. Uh, and we are doing that with My Village. Uh, My Village is a concept that we started this year that takes a holistic approach to the village. And the objective of My Village is to ensure that in a specific village where we are, all children can read and do basic maths. So what we are doing in my village is to combine different solutions together and offer a menu of alternative ways of supporting all children in one specific village. If we could start from small, let's say at the village level, and we engage citizens, teachers, local authorities, youth, and we say, we have a problem here. We have many children who cannot read. Let's come together and in the next 40 days, 50 days, we solve this problem together. And no child will be found in this village who cannot read. No child of a, age-going child will be found here that cannot do basic maths. So we are already doing this in three countries, in Kenya, in Tanzania, and in Nepal. But we would like to expand to many other countries. And by uh, uh, 2026, 20, 2027, 20, we could say we have one million villages in the global south where all children can read and do basic maths. So when I look to PAL network, uh, what I would like to see 
uh, is a network that is building evidence together, building solutions together, and voicing together. And by voicing together, I mean uh, seeing PAL network data that is produced uh, in, in the Global South by Global South people, uh, being the reference of learning outcomes in the Global South. And I do think that no one else is better positioned to produce uh, those evidences than us, because we are here where the problem is most felt. We are here where uh, our children are the most left behind. And as we feel the problem, we should also be part of the solution of that problem. I think that that's a really inspiring vision and a call to the whole sector, um, I think, to, to work with communities on both data and solutions. I also really love the, the flipped approach you, you mentioned because I think there's a tendency to think about bringing about change in education and education systems from the top down, right? You think, well, okay, we're going to put this policy reform into effect and then we'll, we'll go to scale that way. Um, but I really love the idea of flipping the model totally and focusing on the village first and the community first and then saying, well, if we can have success here in this one village, then it's possible to have greater success scaling some of those lessons um, in other villages as well. Um, and I really like that model too. Now for the question we ask on every episode of the Rice Podcast, what is one thing that you wish other people knew about the education system in Mozambique, or it can be about education systems broadly as well? One thing that I would like people to know is that from my experience in working at school level with teachers, uh, my concern is not only on what happens when children are out of school. My concern has shifted. My concern is what happens when children are in school with teachers. Why is it a concern for me? Because I have seen teachers with strong difficulties with big challenges in doing basic operations. Teachers who struggle to read, teachers who struggle to explain subtraction. I have seen myself teachers taking sticks to make you know, a simple operation, a simple has 16 minus 8. I have seen it myself. And asking that teacher three times, four times, how would you explain uh, a child how is 16 minus 8? And the teacher had not glue on how to do it. So it's, uh, of course, I'm not generalizing and this is not applied for all teachers, but when you have 30% or 35% of teachers 
with those kind of challenges, you can imagine uh, how many children will also uh, uh, will also face the same challenge. So there is a need to invest on a quality of teachers. There is a need to invest on the instructions and to really focus on the learning outcomes. Again, the most important is not to see a number of children within a building with a, a, a man or a woman in front of them wearing a white uniform and holding a stick on the role of teacher. That is not the most important. The most important is what are children taking out of it? The, the second is not just about Mozambique. I, I would say it's globally. I think we are still underestimating the power of citizens. We are still building solutions based on the same number of schools that we have in the country, on the same number of teachers that we have in the country. I was reading a report yesterday from UNICEF that says that if we keep this pace, we will need seven years to recover from the learning losses in literacy and 11 years to recover from learning losses in numeracy. Are we going to wait? Are we going to wait those seven years to solve this problem? If we still build the solutions on the same school system that we have globally, on the same number of teachers and in same uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, systems that we are in, this problem really will be solved. We need to have courage to call the society, to call the citizen and say, look, these are the children that we have in this school, but we know that there are many other who are not here today. Please go, call them. We will sit together and we will work with these children in the next three or four months, at least to build their foundations of reading and numeracy. And if one teacher alone cannot do that, other citizens in the community who can read and do basic maths can help. And that will not be, uh, 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 let's say, you don't need to integrate them all in the school system. No. We, you need them to solve the crisis. After you have built the foundations, then teachers will continue their work uh, normally. So those are the two things that I would like to share uh, about where I think uh, we should pay more attention. And as we build solutions, maybe some thoughts to consider. What a great call to action. And I think two great points to end on as well. One, not judging our success um, by the number of children in school, but the value they're taking from it and what they're learning. Um, and two, um, the power of harnessing citizens and community, involving them and engaging them to support kids, children, teachers um, through their schooling to get that value. So thank you so much for joining us, Armando. It's been a real pleasure and um, I've really enjoyed the conversation and hope to speak again soon. 
thank you very much for this opportunity. Uh, as I said, it's a really a privilege to be here and to share with you uh, lessons from our work. I really think that if we come together, we can solve this crisis. But it will need some courage and some unusual decisions like mobilizing the entire society, the entire community, the entire village. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. And if you liked it, be sure to check out our research at riseprogram.org or follow us on social media at Rise Program. You can find links to the research mentioned and other work shared under the description for this podcast episode. The RISE podcast is brought to you by the Research on Improving Systems of Education RISE program through support from the UK's Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office, Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation.